Hello, friends. Welcome. As always, so happy that you're here with me. And my goodness, today's episode, mm, I am chatting with Dr. Bettina Love, who is a professor of education, and we are discussing all things public schools today, good and bad. This is an episode you do not want to miss, so let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. I am really excited to be joined today by Dr. Bettina Love. Thank you so much for your time. I'm very, very much looking forward to this conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thank you. Oh, it's truly my pleasure. I would love to hear more about your experience as an educator. Like teachers always love to hear from other (laughs) teachers. There's a lot of teachers listening to this and there's a lot of parents who are listening to this. Mm. There's a lot of people who care about American history listening to this. So I really love that your work is really the intersection of all of these different topics. So tell us a little bit more about your background. So I was born and raised in upstate New York. I'm from Rochester, New York, and I grew up in a loving, thriving Black community. You know, people probably don't know that Rochester, New York, during the 80s and 90s was the home of Xerox, Kodak, Bashalam. Paychecks, Ragu, Champion Sports, Seagrams. It was just an amazing place. And I had amazing teachers. I had two amazing teachers that changed my life. One was Miss Johnson. She was tall. She was from the South. She was no nonsense. And I loved her for it. And then my next Black teacher was a, my first Black male teacher was Mr. Clayton. He was tall and he called us all by our last names. You know, he would love, get over here, love, do this, love, do that. And he just, was such an adoring, thoughtful, smart man. And I started playing basketball and I would leave early and my parents didn't know I was leaving early to play basketball. And so I would come to school dirty and he would see me on the basketball court playing. And one day he said, love, do your parents know that you're out here playing early? I said, no. He said, I'm going to tell your parents. I'm going to keep watching you. I want you to keep playing, but don't come to my class dirty ever again. You bring a change of clothes, you iron those clothes, and you bring a change of clothes, and you keep playing. And it was, I just had amazing teachers. High school, I had amazing teachers. So when I thought about what I wanted to do when I grew up in this world, I wanted to be one of those amazing teachers that I had who were loving and kind, and they were smart, and they dressed really well, and they even smelled good. I can remember how good they smelled. And I just wanted to be one of those teachers. And so I went to college on a basketball scholarship and I had amazing professors who really poured into me to keep reading and writing and thinking critically. And so I came out and I became a teacher and I started my teaching career in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I went to school. And then I moved to Miami and really got my teaching chops in Homestead, Florida, right side, about 45 minutes outside of Miami and US one. And that's the first time I knew what diversity really meant. You know, when you go to Miami and there's students are speaking Creole and students are speaking Spanish and there's all different dialects of Spanish and everybody is just there. And I had so many amazing mentor teachers my first year teaching. And I just got a chance to see how beautiful it was to be a teacher and how difficult it is to be a teacher. And I wanted to research that. I wanted to understand that. And so that kind of drew me out of the classroom into a PhD program and start wanting to research teachers and study teachers. So I've always been somebody who just had a very profound respect for teachers and then becoming a teacher and now a parent. So I've just seen education from multiple lenses and I've always seen dedicated, loving, smart people who want to inspire young people to be better citizens, to be better thinkers, to be critical thinkers, to see things from multiple perspectives, to change the world, want people to follow their dreams. So I've always been inspired by teachers since I was a little girl. I love that. I love that. And you have a a really incredible new book out called Punished for Dreaming, How School Reform Harms Black Children and How we heal. And this is not just a book of like, well, here's all the problems. Best of luck. Uh, (laughs) You you have really taken the time to think about what it means to read this book, sit with the information, understand the repercussions of your research and your writing, and think about ways that you can help people 
not just heal, but also move forward. And that could be everyone from somebody who might want a coloring book to action plans, mm-hmm. lesson plans, things that people can actually do to make changes, to implement ways that things might improve in the future. So I love that aspect of it, that it's not just like, here's a bunch of bad information and I hope you're okay tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so I totally get it. It totally makes sense why having been inspired by a number of fantastic teachers throughout your career, why you would want to become one, and then having gained experience in education, why you would want to study what makes education tick in the United Mm. States, what historic elements have conspired to create the system that we have now, both for the positive and the negative. But you really focus on this concept of school reform. Mm. And we were saying before we, we started, That to many people, reform is a positive word. If you said, should we reform schools? Most people be like, yeah, because there's some things that I don't agree with. Like, yeah, let's reform it. So let's first of all, set the stage by talking about the type of reform that you have researched and let's define the terms, what reform means in the context of your book. Yeah. Thank you for that. Because reform is this big word and which kind of encapsulates all these different changes that we should have in our society. And so everything falls under reform from crime reform, welfare reform, immigration reform, school reform. And so our country kind of uses the phrase reform as a catch all phrase mm-hmm. to say they can fix almost anything with reform. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we, we say the word reform, that means, and we kind of as citizens just trust that our politicians are going to do the right thing because they use the word reform. And so we've used the word reform throughout history as kind of a catch-all to say we're going to fix these issues. Now, the problem with reform is that typically the people who have destroyed this type of thing, this entity, are the ones who are going to so-called reform it. Mm-hmm. And then they don't understand that you can't reform something that is not only broken, but working exactly the way you designed it to be broken. So you cannot simply reform that. And what we do with any type of reform when it comes to welfare reform, immigration reform, education reform, crime reform, we pretty much deal with the edges of that type of system that is not only broken, but inherently unequal, inherently unjust inherently underfunded, and inherently racist and anti-Black. So when you think about a system that has all of those issues facing it, you just can't tinker with the edges of it. You just can't try to say, hey, we're going to change this thing without focusing anywhere on the real issue. And so what reform does is it just tinkers with the edges. You get a little piece of reprieve, but you have not at all dealt with the structural issues that are continually to create disadvantages, discrimination, and systems of poverty and structures for people in their real lives. And so reform is something that I would say does more harm than actual good, because you're not at all dealing with the systematic structures that create the harm that was in the system. Yeah. I mean, you could say we're going to reform how teachers are paid. But in reality, your reform could be, we're going to increase your cost of living adjustment by 1%. And that might be your definition of reform. It does not address the structural issues of chronic school underfunding, the devaluing of educators, the idea that, you know, it's considered a helping profession. It's primarily women who are engaged Mm -hmm. in it, that we have all of these historically not paid women in an equitable way that we've historically not paid teachers of color in an equitable way. Like there are literally a 100, a list of 100 <laughs> things right. that we could say that were not actually addressed by your reform. reform. Yes. And so if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is these reforms that people have engaged in over the last 40 years are making small adjustments to things that might seem obvious to the naked eye that the person Mm -hmm. that a person looking at the system from the outside would be like hey we gave teachers a raise thumbs up that's a great reform but it's not actually addressing the root causes of many of the issues that need to be addressed yes and on top of that many of the reforms become punitive 
many of the forms actually start to do more harm than good and compound the situation. For instance, we can talk about the reform of the testing movement and the high stakes standardized testing movement. That type of reform has not proven to show any results that we have in our education system that has proven to work. We can talk about reforms that have closed schools. That is a reform model that has been very hurtful in our school system right now. So some of these reforms, charter schools and vouchers and school choice, we say these things under the guise of reform. And some of these reforms actually hurt the system more than help the system. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, I don't know a single educator who is in favor of the high stakes testing models that we have been using in United States schools for decades now. I do not know a single one. And I have taught in three different states, currently know hundreds of teachers. Mm -hmm. And I do not know one single educator who thinks this benefits my students, this helps them learn better, this improves the quality of instruction, this is beneficial to education as a whole that we engage in these high stakes testing, not a single one. And also when you think about just the time, we now know that if you enter public education in K and you go all the way through to 12th grade, you're going to take a total of 120 tests, minimum 120 tests throughout your K through 12 experience. The time, the money, the effort that is being put into is something that is so unproven. And that's another thing about reform is that many of these reform models are unproven. And we do it year after year, decade after decade with unproven models again and again under the guise of school reform. That's absolutely right. The evidence that this improves anything is, first of all, not there. But secondly, Mm -hmm. to demonstrate that you are improving something, you need to actually quantify what it is that you aim to improve. What are you hoping to improve with this test? Uh, I have never heard that articulated. How are we improving a child's education by giving them millions of dollars worth of high stakes tests on a yearly basis? I don't think people realize how much money is spent Mm -hmm. on high stakes testing in the United States. It is staggering. It's a billion dollar industry. And they spend millions lobbying to ensure that we keep these high stakes standardized testing. And so I don't think the average parent, the average taxpayer understands just how much money we have spent over the last 40, 50 years on standardized testing with absolutely no results. You would not do this in any other profession, in any other field that you would go down this road with no results, no data, and you just keep going. You're absolutely right. There's no other system, healthcare, private industry, nothing where we would dump billions of dollars into something to have it not improve anything and to have everyone who works within that system say, this is harmful. Mm -hmm. Let's stop doing this. Mm -hmm. And for outside forces to continue to 
to force children to spend a too large a percentage of their educational time engaged in these high stakes tests. The system is rigged and parents, taxpayers don't understand the system is rigged because we have all of these so-called data points and metrics that show these are good schools, these are bad schools. We just have all these ways in which to dispose of these schools. We have all these ways in which to talk badly and underperforming, at risk. Like we have all of these phrases that we use that signal to parents that this is a bad school. You know, when I taught in Florida, Florida actually gives schools a letter grade in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And so you can teach at an A school or you can teach at a D school. And as you're, if you're a parent, if you're a child, how does that make you feel walking in every day as a teacher walking in every day? You no, know, you're teaching at a D school. Mm-hmm. And let me say this. When I taught at a D school in Homestead, Florida, those teachers taught, those parents showed up, those kids were there. And there were so many circumstances. We had students who had just got to the United States and now were being tested in mm-hmm. English. That makes no sense. Why wouldn't you test these kids in their home language? Of course, you're going to be at a D school when you're at a school where you're testing kids not in their home language and they're brilliant, but you can't test them in the language that they know. Like these are immeasurable circumstances that we're trying to tell politicians. We're trying to tell school board members. We're trying to tell parents this is not a winning solution for our greatest gift, and that is our children in a democracy. Mm, I love that. You're absolutely right that we are applying a business mindset of we need to make our Q4 numbers uh, (laughs) so that, you know what I mean? We got to make our Q4 numbers and our projected revenue needs to be X. Mm -hmm. It's this very data-driven mindset of like, we got to make the sales projection in order for everybody to get the whatever. And that has never been shown to do anything beneficial for an eight-year-old. I talk about this in the book with educational entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Like, what is an educational entrepreneur? How do you get to be an educational entrepreneur? That means you get to experiment. You get to fail. You get to have a scheme that you came out of business school with and then apply that to education. And where do you get to apply that? Low income, low performing schools filled with black and brown children who need the best. They don't need experiments. They don't need a 21-year-old with a master's degree who's never taught in education. And now they got a scheme to try to come into schools and do this and do that and make millions of dollars off a program that they've never tried. Like this is where they get to experiment. And so it's not only that they're using a business model, they're also using our schools as a testing ground Mm -hmm. for unproven, untested curriculum models all types of ways in which that they're all still making a great deal of money from. We have venture capitalists in education now. We have everybody who wants to make money. They see this as the wild, wild west. They see this as open season for money making through educational entrepreneurship. What does it mean to be an entrepreneur? That means you have to fail. And who are you going to fail with? Black and brown children. They don't test these programs in the top performing schools in the country. Or were their children in school? That's right. There's no experimentation with like, hey, we got this dude who just graduated. He's (laughs) got an idea. Let's drop a nice chunk of change on this new curriculum that's going to turn around this at-risk school. Mm -hmm. No, no. They do not experiment in the top performing schools in the country. They are going with what works, which is things like small class sizes, individualized instruction for children who are coming from other Mm -hmm. places or who are in need special education services. Mm -hmm. Highly trained teachers. Highly qualified teachers in Mm -hmm. small classrooms. Those are the things that are demonstrated with data to improve educational outcomes, not a dude who wants to get rich quick. Right. And has a great PowerPoint, has a great deck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you have a great deck in education, mm-hmm. you can set yourself up making eighty, hundred thousand dollars a year with a great deck. You got a great program. You sell this. And here we go. We experiment on black and brown children. Mm-hmm. And that is also one of the reasons reform has done so much harm, because under reform, these individuals are able to experiment 
unproven mm-hmm. ideas, come into education, make their money, make their millions, leave, and black and brown children are left in educational debt, as Gloria Latson Billings would say. I want to talk a little bit about the concept of school choice and school vouchers, because this is such a hot topic in education right now. Mm-hmm. And I see so many people saying things like, if you really cared about Black and brown children's educational experiences, you would allow them to leave their failing schools and go to a better school. I'm sure you're quite familiar (laughs) with this, with exactly what I'm saying, that if you really care about black and brown kids, you'd remove them from their inner city failing school. So interesting how you equate inner city with failure. It's never let the kids leave the failing suburban school. That's mm-hmm. that that's not mm-hmm. that's an oxymoron. Failing right. suburban school, that's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. But this idea that because the schools in the inner city are mm-hmm. so irreparably broken, the best way to care for the educational needs of the children attending them is to let them leave that school mm-hmm. and to let them go to a different, better school. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear your take on that. I just want to give a little history lesson because what I want to be very clear about is that if you talk to somebody who is, let's say, 70 years old, 80 years old, and they grew up in America's public schools, they have no clue what we're talking about. The very ideas of school choice and vouchers and and lotteries and, and all the magnet schools and charter schools, they have no clue what we are talking about. How did this happen? How did we get here? We integrated schools in this country. Brown versus the Board of Education, 1954. There was massive resistance Mm -hmm. to Brown. The resistance was so massive that we now saw private schools pop up. What we call segregation academies. We saw the United States government give these segregation academies tax breaks. Mm -hmm. And so you started to see the notion of school choice pop up. Once we integrated schools in this country Mm -hmm. and we saw white flight, we saw white folks leave the inner cities, create the suburbs. And now you have schools in the inner city who have been gutted of resources, gutted of teachers. We saw property values. All of these things happen after we tried to integrate schools in this country. And then you had notions of school choice. When I tell people that if you went to a private religious school in the South that is in like a nice suburb, chances are extraordinarily high that you went to a segregation. Segregation. That's that is correct. And extraordinarily high. Unless you can say like this school was started by nuns in the 1850s. Unless you can say that, chances are good that your school started in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. It's religiously affiliated and exists in a relatively nice suburban Mm -hmm. area, segregation academy. Because in some places like Virginia, Arkansas, other locations, they just decided we're not integrating. They decided to close schools for everybody. We're just closing. (laughs) We will close schools for everybody before we integrate schools. And so we saw a gutting of public education. We should have the resources We have the know-how to say each school in this country should be a world-class school. You should not have to leave your neighborhood to say, here's a better school, because every child cannot do that. Every child cannot afford the voucher and make up the difference. You shouldn't have to be shipped around and bussed around to try to find a good school in your community. Because if we remember, that is what Brown was about. Brown was Linda Brown, a little black girl who had to leave her neighborhood school to try to find a better school. So if we're still saying school choice, then what we're saying is that we have not done anything since Brown versus the Board of Education, because our children should not be leaving their neighborhood to still try to find a better school, to get a voucher, to get a lottery, to get into a charter school. We should be saying as a country that each school is 
valuable and each school we should put resources in and teachers in and each school we should ensure that there is clean water and clean air. We have schools right now in the inner city that don't have clean water and don't have clean air. There is no choices. This is not a choice. In a democracy, you don't have some schools that you say are better and some schools that you know are bad. And now we're going to try and ship all of these students to that school. That's not how this should work. And we know that's not how it should work. And so when I hear the word school choice, what I'm hearing is you don't want to fix all of America's schools. You don't want to deal with the real issues and you just want to have a Band-Aid. And when you say better, what do you mean by better? Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes when you say better, what you mean is white. You're so right that we have for the latter half of the 20th century into the 21st century, we have systematically starved America's public schools of the resources they need. And if we did that to any other thing, farmland, for example, if we never took care of our farmland and then we're like, this farmland doesn't produce, (laughs) you know, like there would be no shock. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, if you never give it any water ever and you dump toxic chemicals on it, oh, it doesn't grow things. Mm -hmm. Shocking. So it actually should not even come as a surprise that we are now reaping the fruits of Mm -hmm. what we have sown. And the solution is not to continue not watering and dumping toxic chemicals on the farmland. The solution is to make the farmland productive again Mm -hmm. so that everyone has the chance to a high quality education that meets their needs. Yes. It's not hard. We know what to do. That's right. We know students need a rich curriculum. We know students need teachers who are highly skilled, highly trained teachers. We know students need classrooms that are state-of-the-art classrooms that have all the technology that they need. We know students need extracurricular programs. We know how much art and dance and sports play into the full experience of students. We know they need smaller classrooms. We know what works. The fact that we will keep going down a path that we know has done harm for the last 40 years through reform and we know what works is unbelievable Mm -hmm. to me. And I love that you said we have really, truly starved education in a targeted way because everybody isn't starving. And we know exactly where those schools are. We know exactly what needs to be done. Each student in this country is around $12,000, $13,000 per pupil. Our most neediest students, they need to be around $42,000 per pupil. So we are underfunding our students each and every day, particularly the ones who need the most in this country. It is unbelievable. And we talk about data all the time. But when you start to give this type of data, oh, nobody has, oh, nobody wants to hear that. No, nope. Mm-mm. That is not information. I don't like the words coming out of your mouth. So shut up. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But we're going to test. We're going to test. Well, let's oh, look yeah. at this testing data. Students are not performing. Well, these are the reasons they're not performing. They don't have highly trained and highly skilled and highly credentialed teachers. They don't have small classrooms. We have to understand that this is not sustainable for a democracy. This is not sustainable for our children. And this is a country that can't keep going in this direction with one of the hallmarks of democracy, which is public education. I love that you said we know what works. This is not a mystery. It's actually quite straightforward. We we know exactly <laughs> what works. And yet, instead of doing what we know works, we continue to dump billions of dollars into experiments instead of doing what actually works. Yeah, um, yeah. This is a topic that gets me real riled up, but you know, <laughs> I, I don't like it. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. In the words of Dwight Schrute, identity theft is not a joke, Jim. But seriously, if you've ever had somebody try to steal your credit card number and then try to make a bunch of fraudulent charges, that has happened to me on more than one occasion. If it's happened to you, you know it's a nightmare. Having your personal information on the internet is like giving strangers the key to your front door. Not good. And Delete Me can keep that door locked and your information safe. And I recently found a solution that is a service called Delete Me. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information that you don't want online and they make sure that it stays off. It is a subscription service that finds your personal info on the web, searches all the databases, and then helps prevent identity theft by removing that information from all of these databases. So when you sign up, you tell Delete Me exactly what information you want deleted, and then their experts take it from there. They send you a report every month of like, we found your information in the following places and we removed it. More simply, Delete Me does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal info off the web. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount just for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash Sharon and use promo code Sharon at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash Sharon and use code Sharon at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash Sharon, promo code Sharon. This is another one of the challenges that we are currently Mm -hmm. facing, which is teacher retention. Teachers do not want to teach in today's educational environment. Farmers don't want to farm land that has no water and is full of toxic chemicals, turns out. Mm -hmm. Turns out Mm -hmm. farmers are like, you know what? That's not productive. I can't work with that. We have been staring down a teacher shortage crisis for a long time Mm -hmm. in terms of not training nearly the number of educators that we need to replace retirements. That has been like a train that is coming towards us, picking up speed for a long time. Now, if you take that and you add in the pandemic and Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. add in the political system that has caused education to become a culture war topic Mm -hmm. where every other teacher is a groomer because they're Mm -hmm. trying to read a book about black child to their school children. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you add in the starvation of resources where teachers are spending seven, eight, nine hundred dollars, a thousand dollars of their own own money salary every year to just get kids what they need. It has created such a perfect storm of issues where we had unprecedented numbers of teachers quitting in the middle of the year. And anybody who is a teacher knows like, oh, heck no, you don't quit in the middle of the year. You absolutely do not quit in the middle of the year. In fact, teachers try to time when they're going to give birth 
so that they're gone for as little a time as possible. You know, like teachers try to- Surgeries, births, yes. weddings, yes. their whole lives are around staying for the full year. Yes. That's right. That's right. Teachers do not want to leave in the middle of the year. Mm -hmm. Like it produces so much anxiety and guilt. Yes. So to quit in the middle of the year says so much. Hundreds of thousands of teachers quit in the 21-22 school year in the middle of the year. This is a tragedy. It is a crisis. And I have not even scratched the surface of all of the issues surrounding teacher retention and, and also just encouraging teachers to go into the classroom, to, be, to go into education to begin with. What do you make of this? What are we doing to ourselves and how can we fix it? This is by design. You have very powerful forces who want to privatize education. Mm. You have very powerful forces who believe that education should not be free in this country. You have a group of people in this country who are very powerful and they want to make sure that the billions of dollars that we spend on education as public dollars become private dollars. And the way that you do that is you create chaos. You create crisis after crisis after crisis. And we're watching them create crises in education. And so all of these things that teachers are facing right now, particularly the book bans, the critical race theory bans. You can't say anything about queer kids and trans kids in schools. And we've seen no proof that this is even happening. And let's be very clear, that's not a bad thing. We got to stand up and say, you teaching Black history is not a bad thing. You're not going to make me think that if I teach Black history, I'm a bad person. You're going to make me think that if I teach that queer students exist and queer people are beautiful and they're and, and gay people exist and gay people are beautiful. You're not going to convince me and make me shame me for doing that. And so we now have a teacher shortage because over the last 45 years, we have not put in the recruitment efforts and we have watched student loan debt skyrocket. Why would I want to take out $90,000 in debt to make $45,000 a year? And one in five teachers moonlights. So if I am somebody looking at a profession, why would I want to go into a profession where I could be railroaded? I could become a political pawn. I could find myself in a national spotlight for trying to teach black history. I'm going to get into extreme amount of debt. And I'm going to make $45,000 a year and I'm going to have to moonlight and find another job just to supplement my income with the rising cost of everything right now. How do you sell this profession? Then I also have to think about if I go to a charter school, I may not have tenure. I will not sit here and try and sugarcoat this profession. But what I try to say is that, listen, it is a sacrifice. Yes, but it is a beautiful sacrifice. And I truly believe right now that teachers, and this is not hyperbole, I truly believe that teachers are going to hold up this democracy. Because if we're going to teach the next generation of young people how to disagree but not be disagreeable, how to disagree but not go and resort towards violence, if we're going to teach the next group of people how to be critical thinkers and see history from multiple perspectives and see history from multiple angles and try to understand what you believe and what you understand. That is actually critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Just having one book is not critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Having a variety of understanding, a variety of images, a variety of art and dance and expression. We need teachers right now because our world needs humanity. Our world needs love and compassion. Our world needs young people who understand that you may not agree with me, but you don't have to be violent. And teachers are going to be the ones in the classroom with our students every day who can teach them that on top of critical thinking skills, on top of math and English and science. And we do all of that. But right now, as a country, a country that is facing so much violence, we're going to need teachers to really step in and teach young people how to be loving and kind and human to each other. Mm. 
And I see teachers doing the unbelievable work of holding up our democracy right now. It's so good. I love that. You know, I have a daughter who absolutely loves school. She has the best teachers. She loves her teachers. Over the summer, she's like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to go back and see Mr. So-and-so. I just love him. She just loves everything about school. And she's so smart and so enthusiastic. She's in going to 11th grade. I recently said, have you ever thought about becoming a teacher? You obviously love school and you obviously love teachers. Mm -hmm. You are a teenager who loves teachers. So (laughs) these could be your actual peers. You could be doing for kids what they're doing for you. Think about what an impact your teachers are having on your life. And she thought about it for a minute and you could tell that the idea is appealing to her. Mm -hmm. And then she said, yeah, but I don't want to spend my career being disrespected and poor. Mm. And that is entirely the point. (laughs) I don't want to spend my career being disrespected and poor. Yeah. It's no wonder that our best and brightest, a child who absolutely would make a phenomenal teacher, like her level of energy and enthusiasm Mm. is through the roof. She would be a phenomenal teacher. Like I know what it takes, but she's not even willing to entertain the idea for long because she doesn't want to be disrespected and poor and go to college for five, six years, racking up all this debt to only to be disrespected and poor. She's making a sophisticated decision. She's making a very thoughtful decision. I mean, this country is disrespectful to teachers. What we saw in the pandemic, the disrespect, oh my God. And every time you get your paycheck, that's a sign of what you value. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Every time I get paid, I feel more disrespected. (laughs) More disrespected. So she's making a very sophisticated, thoughtful decision that I don't want this to be my life. And I think, you know, my wife's a teacher, you know, just like you, I have many friends who are teachers. And the first thing they'll say is that the parents know, the parents are saying to them, I wish you got paid more. What can I do? How can I help out? The parents are like, I see this person doing these amazing things for my kid. And I'm hearing everything that's being said about them. And it's not mapping. It's not adding up. I don't understand it. But at the end of the day, how do you want your child to go into this? I mean, as a black person, I'm a first generation college student. My parents didn't go to college. And so when you say to a first generation college student, hey, I want you to come out as the first person to ever go to college in your family and go into a profession where you're going to be disrespected and you're not going to make any money. But hey, go to college for the first time. Like, how do you sell this? But I do believe there are so many forces in this country who want to see education privatized and done with. And they are happy that we are facing this crisis. They are enthusiastic that education is going into this direction because they want to privatize it. And so they will keep creating crises after crises that is manufactured. And many of the things that we're watching right now in education, they're manufactured crisis. They don't actually exist. We're seeing right now, the Washington posted a wonderful analysis of these book bans, particularly focused on LGBTQ book bans. And what they found out that 10 people were responsible for almost 60% of the book bans, 10 people. There are forces at hand right now that are ensuring that they're is a crisis in education that is making education look like something that is out of control. And back to the where we started, when you can make something look like it is out of control, that the government cannot do anything with it, then you can come in and say, we have to reform, reform. this structure. And that is how you do it. Create a crisis, create distraction, make sure everybody believes that it's dysfunctional, and then you have to reform it. And how do you reform it? Through the private sector. Mm -hmm. This is not by happenstance. This is happening right now. And it is a full out plan that we are seeing being executed in Mm -hmm. education right now with surgical precision. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, 
a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Okay, I I want to ask you about one more thing. I mean, we we this episode could be six hours long. We would not we would not run out of things to talk about. Trust me. But one of the things that I think is often really overlooked when it comes to U.S. history, Black history, educational history, is, I mean, of course, for most of American history, Black folks were denied education. Schools or states just refused to spend money on it. It was illegal to teach enslaved people how to read because education is liberation, right? It makes you you dangerous if you know too much. So we're going to make sure you don't know anything. And then when schools finally did start popping up post-Civil War, especially throughout the South, Mm -hmm. they were funded largely by the black communities. Come on, teach. Let's go teach. Yes, (laughs) teach. Yes. Black communities who paid twice for these schools. Paid paid two times with their taxes. And then they also gave more money of their Mm -hmm. own personal money Mm -hmm. to fund these schools. Now, recently, recently now, what you're saying is that these individuals were recently enslaved. Now they were not enslaved anymore and they are now doing that type of work just up from slavery yes it's unbelievable to think about paying twice twice. thousands thousands of schools popped up around Mm -hmm. the south in a very short period of time largely funded not by state money yes largely funded not by local property taxes Yes, there were some like northern philanthropists mm-hmm, involved, mm-hmm. but the All majority yep. of the money came directly from the black community. Black teachers worked in the schools. Black That's teachers right. became integrated into the communities and really got to understand exactly what this community needed. That's and right. they ended up filling a lot of gaps that nobody else was willing or able to fill. These children need dentists. Let's get a dentist out here. Let's organize a dental clinic. Mrs. So-and-so over there is really behind canning her tomatoes. I am going to go there on Saturday and help them because Mm -hmm. that is what this community needs. That's right. And in many cases, these teachers, of course, were absolutely overworking themselves. They were working seven days a week. When you look at the logs of teachers from this time period, they literally worked seven days a week. That's right. They were going to three and four church services a Sunday (laughs) to spend time meeting members of the community to make the case for, I care about your children. Your children need an education. Please send your children to this school. You know, we're going to do right by them. And so- you see an absolutely monumental amount of progress in the Black community Mm -hmm. when Black teachers were allowed to educate their Mm -hmm. community members. That's right. And then wanting equality, understandably, when Brown versus the Board of Education happened, we then saw a complete collapse of Black teacher influence in the Black community a complete collapse because when schools were 
integrated. And again, this is not saying we should have segregated schools, Mm -hmm. but the way that the system then became set up, it's not like the state of Alabama was like, you know what? Good call. Good call. (laughs) We see it. We like it. We're doing it. That's Mm -hmm. not what happened, right? Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned the enormous resistance in the South to Mm -hmm. integrating schools. Some schools were closed for five years. That's right. Enormous resistance. It wasn't like the schools integrated at the black school, Bettina. It wasn't like the people said, hey, send your white kids out to this phenomenal teacher out of the Oak Road school out in the country with the other black children. No, no, no. It was the black children who then began to attend the white schools. Mm -hmm. And what happened to the thousands and thousands of black educators who had dedicated their entire lives and pursued high levels of education and done a phenomenal job with their students. There were not positions made for those teachers by and large in the white schools. And we are now reaping the fruit of what we have sown when we systematically drove Thousands and thousands of black teachers out of America's schools. You just gave a lesson. <laughs> you just gave a lesson. And it is it is absolutely one that more people need to understand and hear. Because they don't know the history of black education. They don't know the history of the beauty of black education and what black educators. And if I could add just a few things. Please do. I would love that. First of all, these educators were highly skilled masters, PhDs. They were educated at some of the top schools in the country. Teachers College, where I am now. They couldn't go to many of these schools in the South. Many of these schools in the South actually sent them to the North to get educated because they refused to enroll them. So they went to some of the best schools in the country, got their teaching credentials, got their degrees, and then came back to the South to teach. Many HBCUs had education departments and teachers. What you are saying, just to add some numbers to it, after Brown versus the Board of Education, we lost upwards to 38,000 Black educators. We lost 90% of Black principals. And it's really easy to understand. If I would not let my child sit next to a Black child, I'm certainly not going to let you teach them. And the community that we lost, the curriculum that we lost. And what we know, there's a great book called The Jim Crow Pink Slip. And in that book, she talks about how during the 30s and 40s and 50s, Black teachers in the South made upwards to 30 to 50 percent of educators. 30 to 50 percent of educators were made up in the South of Black teachers. Now, here we are. Fast forward 2023 where Black men make up less than 2% of Black teachers. Black women make up less than 8%. Black people, Black teachers in general, have not hit over 10% in the last 40 years. But another statistic that is so important is that if you are a Black student and a low-income Black student, and you have one Black teacher in grades three through five, the likelihood that you will graduate and go to college increases by almost 39%. One Mm. Black teacher. Mm. So if we Mm. hire Black teachers, again, because what you're hinting at is that Black teachers do the invisible labor. Mm -hmm. It's invisible labor that Black teachers do. Black teachers, yes, are going to the football games. They're going to the community. They live in the community. They're going to talk to the mamas and daddies and grandmas. They're doing that invisible labor that we know is critical, not only to education, but community. And that's what we want. We want community. We want these kids to feel like my school is part of my community. My teachers are part of my community, that everyone cares for me. And that is what we had before we integrated schools in this country. We had highly skilled, highly qualified educators when everybody respected them, saw them as leaders and pillars of the community and invested in that. You know, there's this great quote in um, Du Bois's Reconstruction. And what he says is that there is no public education in the South without the Negro. The very idea of public education in the South 
is Black America's idea. And to understand that Black folks newly freed, the first thing that they would do was build schools. Mm -hmm. They understood how profoundly important it was that their children was educated. Because as you said, education is liberation. Mm -hmm. And so we have watched the gutting of not only public education in this country, but we've watched the gutting of Black education mm -hmm. in this country. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't always like this. That's right. It absolutely impacts children of color to see and have teachers that are from their community. Mm -hmm. It absolutely does. But it also positively impacts white children to have yes. teachers of color. Yes. There's nothing like seeing yourself. Mm -hmm. And then there's nothing like seeing an example of something you didn't even know exists, but now you know is great. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like it. And I, I don't think, like you're saying, we put enough value into what we really mean by diversity. And let's be very clear. I think we have to understand why, particularly in our society and the context that students are living in, why having a diversity of teachers are important. Because mm -hmm. we live in a hyper-segregated society. So if I'm a little white kid, I probably only see Black people at school, mm -hmm. my community, and the friends of my parents, and where we shop, and where we spend our time, where we go to church, the activities that we do, the shows that we watch, the books that are in our house. All of these things are probably showing me a world that is just white. Mm -hmm. And so the only place in my little world as a five-year-old or as an eight-year-old, the only place in my world where I'm going to get some actual diversity, is going to be that school. Mm -hmm. And that is why schools being the engineers of diversity and schools being places where we have multiple religions and genders and, and we see different races and ethnicities and different income levels. That's why it's so important because as a society, we have really segregated ourselves and our schools have to be the places that show students what the actual world looks like and that everybody in this world is valuable. Everybody in this world is making contributions. Everybody in this world is coming with different identities that makes them beautiful mm -hmm. and that you are coming as a white child with different identities and different histories and you are beautiful too. And we're all going to come into this place and we're going to do the hard work of learning about each other through difficult conversations around history. We're going to learn about science. We're going to learn about math. We're going to do social studies. We're going to do we're going to do all these subjects. And we're also going to learn about each other. And that's what public and the beauty of public education is. And that is the underpinning of democracy, Bettina. The end. The That's end. the end of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> we we really could talk for, I mean, truly, how much time do you have? We could talk for five or six <laughs> hours. I'm just going to have to have you back. I know people are going to love this episode and Thank people you. will care passionately about this topic. And they're absolutely going to love hearing your perspectives on this topic, but tell everybody where they can find you online. People should absolutely go buy Punished for Dreaming. <laughs> But where could people go to get more information about some of the resources that you have and information you have? Yes, thank you for that question. Please go to BettinaLove.com. There you can buy the book. We have a coloring book that we're giving out with the book. We have a study guide that will walk you through so much around the big ideas in the book. It'll walk you through all the wonderful stories that are in the book. So we have a study guide. We have a coloring book that's on Black joy and creativity and dreaming for Black children. We also have an album that we have produced with amazing artists around songs of joy and liberation. So the book is an experience. So mm -hmm. please go to BettinaLove.com, go to the toolkit page, and you'll see all the ways in which you can not only just read about the book and buy the book, but also have an experience around learning around the big topics and the big issues that are in the book. Um, I'm on Twitter at Belove Soul Power. I'm on Instagram at Belove Soul Power. And before we go, I just want to say thank you. This was an amazing time that I had with you. This was an thank amazing you. space that you have created. 
And I'm just really grateful to, to be on your show. Mm -hmm. And to your audience, you are doing some work. You are mm -hmm. teaching. And mm -hmm. so thank you for the work that you're doing and educating us, particularly in this moment, in this time right now, where there's so much misinformation and disinformation and information to get to the point, to get to the issues and to say it in a way that really speaks to everybody. I'm just really grateful. So thank you. Thank you. I absolutely love this. This was even better than I anticipated. <laughs> and Me I too. would love to have you back anytime, Bettina. I would, when I see your email, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> you can find Dr. Bettina Love's book, Punished for Dreaming, wherever you buy your books. And if you want to support independent bookstores, you can go to bookshop.org. Thanks for being here. The show is hosted and executive produced by me, Sharon McMahon. Our audio producer is Jenny Snyder. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you could leave us a review or share this episode on social media, those things help podcasters out so much. Thanks for being here today.